as our worship leader Dominic said earlier, and Palm Sunday is a very cool day on the Christian calendar. It is the day that we remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus was presented to Israel and to the world as the Messiah and the King of Kings. And it is the day on which he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, chronologically speaking, it's just a few days before the cross. It it was on this Sunday, uh, this day, a Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, that Jesus made his triumphal entry. And then a few days later when he was crucified, that's what we'll celebrate on Good Friday. And then a few days later that he rose from the dead. And so this is a very exciting week. And it's also the Passover week on the Jewish calendar, which has a lot to do with the context of Jesus being presented as the Messiah and what we'll talk about today and a little that we've studied in uh, the book of Joshua as well. So let's pray and get into it. Lord, thank you for this wonderful week of celebration, celebrating the fact that we've been delivered from sin and death in the devil and that we have been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. Thank you, Jesus. God, you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to save a single one of us. You could have left us in our sin and in our rebellion, but you pursued us. And the gospel say that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Thank you, Jesus, for seeking us. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for saving us, Lord. Lord, we pray together, is there anybody here today that doesn't know you, that you would find them today? They'd be found by you and they'd fall on their knees and repent to the God of the universe today and say, save me, Jesus. Lord, maybe there's some of us today that we've wandered away and you just need to make a fresh triumphal entry into our lives. We say, do it, Lord. Lord, we don't want to play church. We don't want to play games. We don't want to put on a Christian face. We want a real, meaningful, radical love relationship with you. That's what the cross is all about. That's what this week is about. And so, Holy Spirit, communicate those truths to us in the word now. Lord, I give you my thoughts and ask that you would author them. I give you my words and ask that every word that falls from these lips would be directly from your throne. And that, Jesus, you be high and exalted in our midst and in our hearts as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're looking at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, this event which we commemorate today on Palm Sunday. And it says in Luke 19 and verse 28, and after Jesus said these things, he was going ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. Now there's a very uh, important reason why he's going to Jerusalem. This day, some 2,000 years ago, began the Passover week. And so Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. We know from the Gospels that he celebrated four Passovers during the time of his ministry, and this would be the last one before his cross. And Jesus wasn't the only Jew heading for Jerusalem at this moment in history. Every male Jew over the age of 18 was required to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It was one of the high holidays, one of the uh, big moments on the Jewish calendar. And so really there were hundreds of thousands of people heading for Jerusalem, Josephus is a a, a Jewish historian, excuse me, and he says that during the Passover in the first century, Jerusalem's population would swell to about 2.7 million people. Now, we know that Josephus was given a little bit to exaggeration, historically speaking. I don't think maliciously so. I just don't think he was that good at estimating the number of people. But be it 2.7 million or a lot, the point is, every zealous Jew was in Jerusalem at this moment. And they were there to celebrate the Passover. Now, you remember what the Passover is from our study a few weeks ago. The Passover commemorates that event where Israel was delivered from Egypt, 
where they were delivered from slavery, from bondage, from the oppressor. That's what that event, Passover, commemorates. And so, get the picture. All the Jews in Israel are heading up to Jerusalem to celebrate their having once been delivered from an oppressor, namely Egypt. Now, remember the historical context. They are, at this moment, occupied by Rome. They're under Roman occupation, so they are experiencing the oppression of another nation now. And so that's very poignant when we see them going to celebrate Passover. In fact, we know from history that Rome and the Roman authorities would have put extra guards on guard and on alert during the Passover season. There would have been extra guards on the Temple Mount and throughout Jerusalem because there was this nationalistic zeal that was surging in the land. Hey, our God once delivered us from the enemy. He can do it again. You know what I mean? That was the attitude. He delivered us with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, and he could do it again, Rome. And so Rome was on guard. Now, what also is significant at this season was there was a tremendous amount of messianic expectation. That is an increased fervency and expectation for the Messiah during the Passover meal, which they would celebrate just a few days from this Sunday, which Jews will celebrate this week around the world, every Jewish household that celebrates the Passover meal, the Seder, will have an extra seat at the table. If you're lucky enough to get invited to a Jewish Seder or a Messianic one and you go there, you'll see that there's an extra seat. And you'll say, what is that seat for? And they'll say, that seat is for Elijah. And you'll say, why? And they'll say, because the book of Malachi says that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And we are expecting the Messiah to come at Passover. And so we set a place for Elijah and every Jewish household just saying, we expect by faith that you will come. And so there's this nationalistic zeal and fervor. There's this religious expectation that the Messiah, the deliverer, might be coming at this time. Now, they had a, a slightly skewed uh, sort of perspective on it. They were expecting a political deliverer. You know what I mean? They were expecting someone that would just deliver them from the hand of Rome and would establish national Israel. And, and we know that Jesus came as much more than a political uh, What's the word I just said? Deliverer. Amen? He came, much more, he came as much more than a political deliverer. He came to set the hearts of men and women free. Right? He came to set our hearts free. But much of Judaism in this time was expecting the Messiah, a political Messiah, and the fervency and the tension is high at Jerusalem at this time. And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And he does something that's very interesting in the next few verses. It says in verse 29, And it came about that when Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied and, uh, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak, The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away went and found it just as he has told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now I love that. We ought to try that more often in our lives. Just take stuff. The Lord has need of it. <laughs> try it out. I don't know if it'll work, but it's fun that they got to do it. But the point is this, that Jesus now is deliberately setting the stage for something. 
He has prearranged that in one village away, there would be this donkey tied up. And that two disciples would come and they would untie the donkey and take it. And that the code word, when the owner said, what are you doing with my donkey? The code word that it was okay would be the Lord has need of it. Jesus has prearranged this moment. Whether he did it uh, practically, that he sometime earlier went over to that village and said, okay, you got a donkey, cool, listen, I'm going to need it. My guys are going to come and they're going to take it, you let them have it, okay? Whether he did that or it was supernatural, you know what I mean? Like the Lord just did it. We don't know. I like to think he just did it. You know what I mean? The Lord, he's sovereign over all the earth. But the point is this. He's now setting the stage very purposefully, very deliberately. Why? To be presented as the Messiah. This is an abrupt about face in his methodology that we viewed previously. Previously, Jesus would always tell people to keep it on the down low when they realized he was the Messiah. He would heal somebody and they get all excited and say, listen, don't tell anybody. He, he would set somebody free and they get all excited. He'd say, listen, don't tell anybody. He would perform these messianic miracles and he was telling everybody, just keep it on the down low. Even at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, he said to his mother, my time, mine hour has not yet come. Why? Mine hour has not yet come. Because there was coming and is in the text before us a specific hour, a day, where he would be presented as the Messiah to the nation. This is, this event in front of us, a triumphal entry. It is the technical and prophetic first coming of Jesus Christ. Technically speaking, this is the first coming. It wasn't at his birth, but we like to think, well, that was the first coming. But technically speaking, his first coming was when he was presented to the nation as the Messiah at the triumphal entry. And so now his hour has come. And so now he's setting the stage very deliberately and very purposefully. And what we're going to see is that his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he rides on this donkey creates quite a stir. Uh, I want you to get a little bit of the, uh, more of the religious and political background. Keep your finger right here and go to John 11. We're going to start reading in John 11 and verse 45 in a second, but let me give you some context. Just previously in John chapter 11, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. That was a good one. Amen. He rose Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha were all bummed out. Lazarus was dead. Jesus came after he'd been in the grave for four days, said, Martha, roll away the stone. In the old King James, she said, Lord, by now he stinketh. And Jesus said, I don't care. Roll away the stone. And when she rolled away the stone, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he had to say Lazarus. Otherwise, every dead Jew in Israel would have came out of their grave. And so he calls Lazarus out of the grave. He's raised from the dead. And this causes quite a stir in Israel. Many people see. They knew that he was dead. He had been dead for four days. Now they see that he's raised from the dead. And it's causing many people to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Because Judaism believed that there were certain miracles that only the Messiah would perform. One of them was raising people from the dead. Another one was uh, causing people to regain their sight who had been blind from birth. And we know that Jesus did that. And Jesus was performing certain miracles throughout Israel that were only expected of the Messiah. And this one, the raising of Lazarus was one. And now many are starting to believe. And that's where we pick it up in verse 45. Many, therefore, the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what Jesus had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees, that is the religious leaders, and told them the things which Jesus had done. 
Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. In other words, they're asking themselves, okay, what's our position on this? Because Jesus is performing a lot of signs that are just indisputable. It's very clear. he's, He's displaying his power. There's no question about it. These are the kind of miracles that we have believed for hundreds of years would be consistent with one who is the Messiah. Now, what is our stance? We've got to make a decision on this. Is this guy the Messiah or not? What are we going to do? Verse 48, it gets even more interesting. They say, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Amen. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now we see politics enter into it. It's amazing how big a role politics play in our world, even in our hearts when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. These guys were staring the Messiah in the face. And they made a decision to reject him based on politics. You see, they were occupied by Rome, Israel was, but Rome allowed them a certain degree of sovereignty. Uh, they got, it, it was allowed that their worship structure would remain intact and they had their own ruling body, the Sanhedrin, so on and so forth. But if you were part of the Roman Empire, it was acknowledged that there was no king but Caesar. Caesar is Lord is what people had to say. That's why it was so huge for the first century church to say Jesus is Lord. People lost their lives for saying Jesus is Lord in the Roman Empire. And so what what was recognized was Caesar was the king. Now they're under the oppression of that king. And they say, listen, if we let everybody follow after Jesus as the Messiah, that is effectively declaring him the king of Israel. That would be seen as political rebellion to Rome. And what Rome will do is come and take away our place and our nation. Place means our place of worship, the temple. They're worried about their worship structure. They will take our place, our building, our rituals, our structure that we're so comfortable with that we love so much, that we've done for thousands of years, they'll come away and they'll take it and they'll take our nation, our identity. And so for political reasons, they were afraid to lose that old religious structure. They were afraid to lose their previous identity. Well, I got news for you. When you come to Jesus Christ, you need to lose both those things because we're not saved into religion. We're saved into relationship. And if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things, the old identity has passed away. All things have become new. If anyone wants to come after me, they've got to deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me, said Jesus Christ. And these men were unwilling to deny themselves. They liked their political stature. They liked their religious worship structure and they didn't want anything to change. And so we see the decision they make if you skip down to verse 53. Verse 53, it says, So from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. Verse 54, As a result, Jesus therefore no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now we catch up in chronology with our account in Luke 19. 
It's the same Passover, the same week, the same time being referred to. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. That would have been the one in 32 AD. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves, as we spoke of. Verse 56, Therefore they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Do you think that he'll come to the feast at all? Now this is significant. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews, all fired up with messianic expectation, with with national fervor, against the oppressor and they're gathered together on the temple mount we hear and and they're saying what do you think do you think jesus is going to show up to this feast of course one of the reasons they're asking that is because there's suspicions that he might be the messiah all israel had heard about jesus by this time and they heard about the signs he was performing and so there was ruminations is he the messiah And they expected, as I told you earlier, that the Messiah would show up during the Passover week. And so they're thinking to themselves, do you think Jesus will show up at this Passover and declare himself to be the Messiah? But a little bit of background to their ruminations was this. We know that the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. Do you think he'll remain in hiding? Or do you think he'd be so brazen as to show up right now at the height of messianic and political expectation? And verse 57 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Now everybody's going to know where he was in just a minute. Go back to Luke 19. Luke 19, we pick it up in verse 35. And they brought it, that is that little donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. You got to catch this picture. When we go to Israel in September as a church, many of you are going with us. We've got about 100 people going. We will go to the Mount of Olives. Now, we hear Mount of Olives and we hear Temple Mount and the fact that they're separated by something called the Kidron Valley. And we think in our geographical mindset that, well, that's big, right? Mount of Olives, a mount's big and Temple Mount must be big and Kidron Valley must be big like the Carpinteria Valley, you know what I mean, or the Central Valley. But you'll find when you go to Israel that everything is tiny. It's a very tiny, tiny nation. And the Mount of Olives is really what we would call a hill. And the Kidron Valley is really what we call a creek. It's just like the Carpinteria Creek bed, just little, just right through it, just like that. And the Temple Mount is also what we would call a hill. All that to say this, if you were on the Temple Mount at that time, as hundreds of thousands were gathered there for worship and for celebration, and you heard shouts on the Mount of Olives, it would grab your attention. It's not so far away that it wouldn't. You would be able to hear these shouts as they came from the Mount of Olives. Now it says that they were praising God for all of the miracles, remember, or the attesting signs. They were praising God joyfully with a loud voice. 
Now, the miracles that they would have been speaking about are the messianic miracles. Those miracles that would have been specific to the Messiah, that lent validity to Jesus' claim as a Messiah and gave validity in the hearts of the Jews that he indeed was the Messiah. And so as they heard these praises coming from the Mount of Olives, them, that and the Temple Mount being in proximity, it would have caught their attention. And as they turned and looked, what they would have seen would have blown their minds. They saw a Jewish man seated on a donkey. Every religious Jew in Israel would have called to mind Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. I'll just read it for you if you want. Zechariah 9.9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. They would have thought Zechariah 9.9, which told us the Messiah might indeed come on a donkey. And what it made that picture even more potent is the fact that the Jews were throwing their garments in front of that donkey. That's what you did in that culture in that time for royalty. If a king was coming, you would spread garments in his path that he might walk over them. They're praising God for the messianic signs. They're laying down their clothes in front of him as if he was a king. And he is seated on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. For your king is coming mounted on a donkey. It's amazing to me that anybody could have missed what Jesus is doing at this moment. He is very clearly, without question, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's proclaiming it in, in, the, in the boldest, most radical way that it could possibly be proclaimed. He's doing that at this moment. Now, remember what else was happening on this day. This day in that century happened to be the 10th of Nisan. Do you remember from our study in Joshua when we went to Exodus 12, what was happening in the 10th of Nisan in Israel? They were choosing for themselves the Passover lamb. On this day, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, every Jewish household was choosing for themselves a Passover lamb. And the high priest was choosing for the nation, for the whole nation, one Passover lamb. On the very day that all the Jews are mindful of the lamb, God is presenting his lamb to the nation of Israel. And I would think that there were certain Jews who were probably there Three and a half years earlier, when Jesus appeared at the Jordan, when John was baptizing people, they had heard John say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And going through their little Jewish minds are the Passover lambs that we're choosing and the Passover lamb that would atone for the sins of the nation and the fact that John said about this Jew who's now coming down the hill that he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And they were on the Temple Mount, which is also called Mount Moriah which is the place where Abraham went to go sacrifice Isaac. And you'll remember what happened. Just before he sacrificed Isaac, the angel of the Lord stopped him and said this, the Lord will provide himself the lamb. Very clear in the Hebrew. The Lord will provide himself the lamb. 
The Lord himself will become the lamb. You'll remember what happened next on that Mount Moriah that day is that Abraham was provided a ram, not a lamb. It wasn't fulfilled in that moment. It was fulfilled in this moment. The Lord will provide himself the lamb. God draped himself in humanity to become the lamb of God, the only unique savior of the world. And this is a technical, prophetic, first coming presentation of the lamb, his triumphal entry. You can't miss how profound this is. Nobody in Israel, it would seem, could have missed what was happening that day. And look at the song they're singing. This makes it even uh, more profound. In verse 38, it says that they were singing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's a quote of Psalm 118, verse 26. And for hundreds of years, the rabbis had taught that when the Messiah comes, we will sing that song. It's the same passage that talks about him being the chief cornerstone. The rabbis taught when Messiah comes, this is a song that will be sang. And now these hearts are turned from attention on the Temple Mount and they look over to the Mount of Olives and they see this guy, Yeshua, seated on a donkey, people throwing down their garments and they're singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were also saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that they were also singing Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. That makes it very pertinent in that political context that we spoke of. That there are these shouts coming from the Mount of Olives. Save now. Save now. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. We're laying down our garments. The other thing they were doing that we know from the other gospel accounts is they were waving palm fronds. And throughout Israel, the palm frond at this moment in history was a symbol of freedom and of national identity and autonomy. Them waving that during the Passover season would be like us waving the American flag on the 4th of July if we were occupied by another nation. I mean, it was just such a radical statement. They're waving the palm fronds, that national symbol of freedom, and they're throwing down their clothes, and the king is coming on a donkey. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. Man, it would have been really cool to be there. (laughs) But check it out. The Jews have a collection of writings called the Talmud. And there's a section in the Talmud called Sanhedrin 98. Part A of that says this. When Messiah comes, if Israel is ready, he'll come on a white horse. If Israel is not ready, he'll come on a donkey. The rabbis have been teaching this to Israel for hundreds of years. It was later recorded when they wrote down their oral tradition that the Jews believed when Messiah comes, if Israel is ready, he'll come on a white horse. If she is not, he'll come on a donkey. He's on a donkey. When does he come on a white horse? Can you not be dead? When does he come on a white horse? At the second coming. Okay, you obviously don't know. Go to Revelation 19. (laughs) Keep your finger here in Luke 19. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 takes place after the great tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation, which are called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's refining. 
Israel will be so refined in the tribulation period that when Jesus comes at the end, all those who are alive and remain will recognize him as a Messiah. In fact, we're told in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that when Jesus comes, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will weep over him because they'll finally recognize that the one that they missed when he came on a donkey, the one who is now coming on a white horse is indeed the Messiah. And so Revelation 19 is just after the tribulation period. We've just had the marriage supper of the lamb in heaven. And now we pick it up in verse 11 at the second coming. It says in Revelation 19, 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. Now look in the next verse, verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in linen, fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. Who's that? That's us. That is you and I. Listen, it would have been cool to be there when he came on the donkey, but we'll be there when he comes on a horse. And he's on a big white horse, and we'll be on little horsies. He's on Cavallo Blanco, and we'll be on little horsies. It's going to be unreal. Maybe you can't go to Israel with us. When we go to Israel, we'll go to the Mount of Olives. Listen, save yourself a couple thousand bucks. Wait for the second coming. You'll go there. Zechariah 14 says that when Jesus comes again, that he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, the same place where he is making his first technical and prophetic first coming in Luke chapter 19. Turn back to Luke 19. It's hard for us to understand. It's almost impossible to believe that people could miss this picture then or now. Now look what we see in verse 39 of Luke 19. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Again, they liked their old religious structure and they liked their political security and they didn't want their boat rocked. And they're proclaiming Jesus to be the king. In every way imaginable, they're proclaiming him to be the king. And the Pharisees say to him, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. This isn't safe. If they keep shouting like this, the Romans are going to come over here and just open up a can on us. Tell your disciples to be quiet or we will lose our place and our nation, as it said in John eleven forty eight. Look what Jesus says next. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said, I'm telling you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Hey, I don't think Jesus was playing games, man. I think if the disciples decided not to praise, to praise him, the stones would have cried out. The point is nothing could have stopped this moment in history. This was the coming of Jesus Christ, his first coming. Nothing could have stopped it. If they stopped proclaiming it, the stones themselves would have raised up and proclaim it. Do you know that it says in the book of Isaiah that when Jesus Christ comes a second time, that the trees will clap? Did you know it says that? When Jesus comes a second time, the trees will clap at his coming. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. He's coming. He has come. He was and he is and he is to come. When we go to Israel, those of us that are going, we'll stand on the Mount of Olives. We'll walk down this road, the triumphal entry Palm Sunday road. 
And I'll point out to you some little stones. I'll say, hey. Those are the stones that didn't cry out. Get one. You'll slip one in your little pocket. And it'll be a reminder to you that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. That he is the king, that he is high and exalted. That if we don't praise him, the stones will cry out. And I don't, I, I don't know about you, church, but I ain't letting no stones cry out in my place. I'm going to praise his name. He's a king of the universe. I'm going to say his name so loud on Easter Sunday. We're going to turn up the sound so loud at the high school that day. Listen, when you guys come next Easter Sunday, worship your little brains out. Go nutso for Jesus Christ. If we don't do it, the rocks around that high school will. He's worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. Now we end right here. Verse 41. And when Jesus had approached, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Many of them missed it. It's unbelievable. Don't miss the profundity of the fact that the God of the universe wept over Jerusalem. The word in the Greek for wept there is not lightly sobbing or lightly crying. It's that kind of chest convulsing, shoulder heaving sort of weeping. He wept bitterly over Jerusalem. Why? He went to seek and save that which was lost. But so many refused to recognize him. They had their reasons, whatever they were. For some of them it was political. For some of them it was religious. For some of them it was position and identity and power and wealth or disbelief, whatever it was. I believe the same thing today. When people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and earth weeps over him. Weeps over him. He's a savior. He wept over Jerusalem. But for those who are saved, did you know it says in the Old Testament that God dances and rejoices over those who are his? Let me ask you, your life, does God dance and rejoice over you or is he weeping over you? Just depends on the decision you make with Jesus Christ. Have you recognized him to be the Lord and the Savior and the King? Have you fallen on your knees and said, God, I am a sinner. You are the Savior forgive me, save me, give me eternal life. Have you made him the king of your life? If you have, then his weeping turns to rejoicing over you. And you're delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And your world changes, man. Maybe there's a weeping of sorts because you just, you, you've just taken Jesus off the throne of your life. You've just let something else get enthroned where he ought to be. You're a Christian for sure, but Jesus is not on the throne for sure. You're one of his, no doubt, but he's not your king. Something else has usurped that place and been enthroned there. Hey man, if that's you, repent of that today. Jesus Christ is the king. We just saw it in this text. He's to be high and exalted and enthroned. Throw down your garments, which are a wonderful picture in the Bible of your reputation and your identity. I got news for you. This life is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. Throw down your reputation and your identity. Repent before the Lord. Why? Because Peter said in Acts 3.19 that times of refreshing come from being in the presence of the Lord. And what's, what's, a, what's gnarly is that when we choose not to repent, the only logical option is judgment. When we don't repent, judgment comes. Now for the Christian, they've been once and for all forgiven. 
And so the way that that judgment is manifest is like this. You will reap what you sow. There's no escaping that. You'll reap what you sow. But for the non-Christian, if they reject forgiveness, then the only logical option for them is judgment. If they refuse to let Jesus forgive them of their sins, then they themselves will stand before the righteous judge, God, for their sins. Much of Israel rejected Jesus at this moment, and so he pronounces judgment in verse 43. He says, For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God held them accountable to know the hour in which they lived. And when they closed their eyes to it and they refused to see it, rejecting his salvation, the only option for them was judgment. And in 70 AD, this was fulfilled. The Romans came and they destroyed the temple, the place, and they took away the nation and Israel ceased to be a nation at that time. The very thing that the religious leaders happened to them. We're afraid that if we let everybody follow after Jesus, the Romans will take away our place in our nation. But it turns out that because they rejected Jesus, they lost their place and their nation. Isn't that profound in the fact that Jesus said this, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But everyone that loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. Jesus said, you want to come after me? You got to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. They wanted to save themselves in their place of comfort and power and position and influence. Jesus Christ came to give himself that we might have new life through the forgiveness of sins. The choice is ours. Don't reject the Lord. Amen? Amen. Lord, I just thank you so much for each spirit here that you love, each person, every heart. And Lord, we pray that nobody would leave today without knowing that they've been saved, born again, given the gift of eternal life, that even at this moment, if they've never done it, people would say, Jesus, save me. I don't understand everything, but I understand enough of it. I know I'm a sinner and that you're the Savior and that you bled on the cross for my sins, save me. Thank you, God, that at that moment you will save them. We pray together that you'd flood their lives with grace and mercy, that you'd wash them white as snow, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are forgiven. And Lord, for those of us that have already been forgiven, but we've dethroned you, forgive us, Lord. We pray that you'd make a brand new triumphal entry into our lives today. brand new triumphal entry and that you would once again be enthroned, that we'd throw down our garments and Lord, that we would wave the palm fronds of freedom over those areas of life where we've become enslaved. Anywhere where sin or the enemy has taken advantage of us, we just ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and wave the palm fronds of freedom over that area of our life. That it would become true in this place today that whom the Son is set free is free indeed. That freedom would come into this place, Jesus. That it's a cry of Hosanna, save now, goes up. You would save in every way, Lord. We bless you and we worship you, Jesus Christ. 